If we are really honest with ourselves, we would all love to be rich. But what does that really mean? Is it simply having a nice car, a big house, new clothes? What if living a rich life isn't what you think? What if it's more about what you give away than what you hold on to? What if it's more about the contents of your heart than the contents of your bank account? In this series, we'll explore what it truly means to live a rich life. Well, I hope you and your family had a great Thanksgiving. If you're a guest with us or you're worshiping with us back at the chapel, Crossroads uh, West, or maybe on Facebook Live, we are thrilled that you're here. We appreciate you carving time out of your weekend to be with us. Now, if the only reason why you're here today is because you've been staying with some family for the past few days and they said they weren't going to feed you unless you came to church with them today, I apologize, all right? Uh, we all have a long way to go, and uh, I don't know what the past few days have been like for you and your home, but uh, we, we do uh, wish you a happy Thanksgiving. We are excited about what uh, the next season in the life of our church is going to look like around here for the next uh, month or so. But this weekend, we're continuing this series that we began last weekend called I Want to Be Rich. And in this series, we've been talking about a really important area of our life called money. Now, there's something deep inside all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, that believes if, if we had just a little bit more, then we would be happy, right? I mean, we are just maybe one paycheck, one zero away from true fulfillment in our life. If, if we just had a little bit more than we have, then we would finally arrive at this place of significance in our life, and then we would be much happier, right? I mean, after all, if we had more money, then we could finally buy that new car. Whenever you see that new car, you really see status. Or whenever you look at that new clothing line, you, you see approval. Or whenever you think about that new TV hanging on your wall, you see happiness. We're just one purchase away from true satisfaction. And more is never enough, and, and we know this at the end of the day, yet we're born with this desire to always be chasing something, to always have more. I mean, what else explains the fact that we have an entire holiday set aside on the calendar each year where we are to give thanks for all that we have, followed by getting up at 3 a.m. the next day, standing in line in the cold, rainy weather, only to take advantage of some sales so that we can have more than we currently have right now. You know what I'm saying? Anybody go out on Black Friday by any chance? Okay, a few of us. I did, by the way, and uh, it was crazy. Um, this past week, I did a little research, and come to find out, uh, there are 10 states in America that have more aggression and violence in malls and stores on Black Friday than any other state throughout the course of the year. And so when I saw that, I initially was intrigued to see where we, as the Hoosier state, um, fit on that parent if we even made the cut, okay? And so as I was reading and scrolling down this page, come to find out the great state of Indiana is the third most violent, aggressive state on Black Friday in stores. Way to go, all right? I mean, <laughs> way to be known, right? Now, we've probably all seen those videos on uh, news or social media of people fighting and, uh, you know, stampeding their way into Walmart whenever they open their doors for the first time. And, and we laugh, and it's kind of funny if, if you're not in that moment. And, and the thing with it is that Black Friday is not really the problem. 
Right, when you see people fighting over uh, new toys or, or new objects, that, that's not really the issue. If anything, it reveals that we've been born with this hunger and thirst for more and that whatever we have, whatever it is that we're dreaming of and whatever it is that we're wanting, it doesn't really satisfy. I mean, it maybe makes us happy for a time, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really last, right? You see, all of us have been created with this desire to belong. We've been created with this desire to to have significance and and to matter and to be good enough and to measure up. The problem is that we tend to search for all of those things in the wrong places. In other words, we are looking for significance and, and needs in our life in objects that ultimately can't satisfy. And so we end up in this place where we are just emptier than where we were before. And so how we spend money reveals what it is that we're living for. It reveals more about us than we may uh, even know at the time. Now, if you're a guest with us today, uh, you, you did hit the weekend where we are talking about money. If, if you're not uh, normally a part of our services, if you're a guest, or maybe you're not even a Christian and you're here today, I want to be really clear about something when we talk about money, okay? We don't want anything from you, all right? We don't want anything from you, but I will say that we believe so much more than it is that we're going to be talking about today that we do hope that you hear something that is really helpful for you. And so more than wanting something from you, we do want something for you, all right? Because we believe that if we submit ourselves to what God says is right, true, and best, that he can show us a better way. This requires that we not only think differently, but we adopt a strategy that reorients our life in such a way that even if we don't like it, even if it's hard or difficult, we're trusting that, okay, that God, you know better than we do. And so that's what this series is about. Now, before we go any further, uh, it's only fair that I clarify a few things as we set up what it is that we're going to be discussing today. And, And the first thing goes like this. All right, God doesn't look down on wealth and possessions. All right, he, he doesn't, you know, condemn those who have a lot. And, and if, you, if you make a lot of money, you don't need to feel guilty about it. If you have a lot of uh, things, or you have a lot of property, you don't need to feel condemned by that by any means. Now, why in the world would I even take time to clarify that? Well, because you can find plenty of churches and pastors and ministries out there that say that, uh, money and wealth and, and the mass of, of finances is evil and, and is bad. And, and really, whenever you hear that, that's nothing more than false teaching that originated about 20 centuries ago. You see, back when the church first started, there, there was a group of philosophers and thinkers that um, were following Jesus. And then all of a sudden, they got to this place where they just wanted something more. They wanted to feel more superior than others. And, and so they started uh, teaching that anything that you see is evil. Anything that you can touch is bad. The, these guys were called Gnostics. And Gnosticism said that wealth and possessions were evil. God didn't want to bless it whatsoever. And and if anything, that you were condemned because you had a lot of it. Now, this is the, one of the reasons why guys like Paul and Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote letters to the first century church because they saw that, that these philosophers called uh, Gnostics were, were permeating uh, followers of Jesus. That They started submitting themselves to this false teaching. And so the reason why many letters in Scripture were written were so that these guys would say, hey, don't, don't buy into that. That's nothing but bad teaching. That's not what God says is right and true. I mean, after all, God sometimes makes his favor and blessing known to us by increasing our wealth or possessions. And and we see that pattern played throughout the Bible. We see that happen in a 
a guy by the name of Abraham in, in his life, a guy by the name of King Solomon, King David, Job, okay, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and a lady by the name of Lydia who converted to Jesus in the book of Acts. These were wealthy individuals, and they were righteous as well. And so to say that God looks down on you for making a six- or seven-figure income, just it's not biblical. You can't find that verse, okay? But the other problem with that is that being rich is so subjective, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like a moving target. And the way that we define wealth or the way that we define being rich in our society is we usually compare ourselves to someone who makes more than us or has more than us, right? And yet, the reality is, not only is this a moving target, but most of us, most of us listening right now could be categorized as, as wealthy. What do I mean by that? Well, check this out. If your household makes $34,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of income earners in the world. All right, next slide, check this out. If your household makes $11,000 a year, you're in the top 14% of income earners in the world. All right, now, it's only in fairness that we also acknowledge that the federal poverty line is between 12,000 and 41,000. Poverty can be subjective as well. That's a little bit of a moving target, but here's the point of this, okay? The point is that it's not about how much you have. The point is what you do with what you have. And and so as we talk about being rich and wealthy today, just put yourself in that category. Because chances are, when Paul is writing to Timothy, the words we're going to look at today, he's meaning you. He's meaning me. Wealth is subjective, and and yet it, it sometimes requires that we look at all that we have so that we know what God's plan is for us to do with what we have. Now, here's the second thing I want to clarify. All right? It goes like this. Your net worth has nothing to do with your self-worth. There's kind of this tendency in our culture that, uh, you know, the game of life goes like this, that in the end, whoever has the most amount of zeros in their bank account or portfolio or most amount of possessions and toys in their garage wins in the end, right? I mean, your identity, your worth, your significance and value is found in what you accumulate. Yet when we find ourselves thinking that way and and submitting ourselves to that, we've not only reduced our identity down to an object, but we're really guilty of what the Bible would call idolatry, seeking significance in something that was never meant to give us significance to begin with. Only that can come from our creator himself. A guy by the name of um, uh, Andrew Carnegie is one of the wealthiest people to have ever lived. Forbes magazine said that uh, in the early 20th century, he was worth about $310 billion, okay? And so when he was in his 30s and was accumulating all of this money, he was earning tons of money, here's what he wrote in, in a diary that he had. He said, man must have an idol, and the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. All right, so he, here's this guy who says, hey, look, I, I, I was at this point in my life where I thought if I just had more, if I could just be richer, then I would be happy and satisfied. And, and yet now, now I'm there, I've arrived, and it's nothing that I thought it was going to be. In fact, I'm now emptier and more broken than I even knew was possible beforehand. And so God, God actually has a better way for us 
And so that's what we're going to learn about today. And we're going to walk through some really practical teaching that I hope, again, uh, will be helpful for you. So what does God say is right and true in this area of our life that if we don't get right, has the potential to wreak havoc on other areas of our lives uh, as well. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the uh, New Testament book of 1 Timothy. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible near you. 1 Timothy can be found in the very back of your Bibles in between the books of 2 Thessalonians and and 2 Timothy, okay? And uh, we're going to be in chapter 6 today. Now, as you're turning there, let me just set up the context of of this letter uh, real quick, okay? This was a letter written by a guy named Paul, who 2,000 years ago was a pastor and church leader. He went around the entire Roman world and started churches in different locations, okay? And so Paul is nearing retirement. He knows that his days here on earth are numbered, and so he's transitioning leadership and uh, responsibility onto his understudy, his apprentice, a guy by the name of, of Timothy. And so in this letter, It's kind of like a pastoral leadership training manual. He's saying, Timothy, do this. Or do you remember that one time when we encountered that group of people? Here's what not to say whenever you uh, face individuals like that again. And so in chapter 6, Paul is instructing Timothy on how to deal with and interact with people in his church that were wealthy, who had a lot of money. And so here's what he says in in verse uh, 17. He says, hey, Command those, Timothy, who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. It's here today, gone tomorrow, right? But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and and willing to share. In other words, the point of money isn't for us to accumulate, but it's to be generous In this way, they will lay up uh, treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Why? So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, Paul says. Now, Paul makes it very clear that there is a way to to manage and view our money that leads to fulfillment and uh, satisfaction in life. But, But you see, this isn't possible unless we learn to think differently about how we view money. This requires that we see things differently. Now, the reality is that none of us really own anything. All right, the, the money that you have or, or the, the toys, possessions, the, the thing that, you know, fills your house or what your hot, it's not really yours. You may say, well, I earned it, I, and I invested it, I got a good return on it. Well, here's the thing. God gave you the mind and the ability to work for it, and so at the end of the day, it's not really yours. It's not really mine to begin with. You see, our creator is is such a good father that everything good in our life comes from him. And while we're told to enjoy earning money in the things that that money can buy, he makes that very clear to Timothy. Hey, God has provided those things so that you can enjoy them. Paul reminds us that the gift that God has given us is never to become more important than the giver. And there's a very fine line with that. Sometimes it's a tension that we've got to manage. Now, whenever I travel, I always bring home uh, a couple gifts for my kids that somehow represents where I was. Back in August, I went to Colorado, and so I, I brought back a couple stuffed animals. One was a moose and, and a bear and, and a wolf, and uh, it's just something fun that I've always done whenever I travel. Well, when I walked through the front door, I had been gone for about four or five days, I realized that this was an expectation of them We've got a problem, okay? Because when I walked through the front door again, hadn't seen them in four or five days, my kids ran towards me, didn't say, hey, daddy, miss you, love you. They just said, hey, where's our gift? Yeah, I was 
so perturbed by that that a couple weeks ago, I traveled. I decided to do something different. Before I opened the door, when I got back after being home for a few days, I decided to put a big bow on my head and present me as a gift to the kids. So when I walked through the door, they said, where's our gift? It's me, all right? My wife, Savannah, said, I sure hope you kept the receipt. <laughs> Why do you laugh? <laughs> the gift is never to be more important than the giver. And whenever we prioritize the, the gift over the giver, we feel used, don't we? Do you like me or do you just like what I can provide? Do you like what I can do for you or are you happy with who I am? And so Paul is saying here, Timothy, hey, God has given us certain gifts to be enjoyed, but the gift is never really the point. You see, when we misplace our focus, that's when slavery happens in our life. And so if we're going to experience freedom when it comes to finances, and and we're really going to live in the fullness of of how God designs for us and intends for us to live, it's got to begin with a perspective shift on our part. And so let me word it like this. Let me ask you this question. Do you have money or does money have you? Be honest with yourself. Do you have money or does money have you? If you're not honest, freedom will never happen. Because you're operating out of illusion. Do you fantasize about having more money at least once a day? Are you in a job where you just hate it, you hate going to work each day, but you put up with it because of the money that you're receiving? Dads, would you rather provide for your family rather than actually be with your family? Do you worry about not having enough money? Are you constantly coming up with creative ways to cut spending and earn more so that you can buy something that you really want or something that you think that, that you need? You see, we will never experience the life that God has for us if we don't make this switch from money having us to us having money. You see, what if in the end, what if in the end that the story of our lives is determined by how we really approached money? Now, this sounds great and all, but you know what? I know that many of us right now are so stuck, we're so trapped and and suffocated when it comes to finances that that you just can't even think straight. You're in so much debt or you've got so many outstanding bills, you don't know how it's ever going to work. I mean, you're you're tired, maybe. You're tired of money having you, but, but how do you make this shift of money having you to you having money? Now, here's the thing. You will never take back control of your money unless you not only begin to think differently, but but you commit to a certain strategy. And so for the next few minutes, I'm going to walk us through a very practical plan that we're simply going to call a spending strategy, okay? Not budget. Nobody likes that word, right? So creatively, we're going to call this a spending strategy. Now, I think it's only fair for you to know that my wife, Savannah, and I have lived by this spending strategy for the entirety of our marriage, okay? And uh, whether we've had a lot, regardless of my income, our income, I mean, it, this spending strategy has worked for us. It, it's protected us in a lot of ways. When we first got married, we didn't have hardly anything. I mean, we were so poor when we were first married. And our story is a little bit unique. We got married when we were sophomores uh, in Bible college, and uh, uh, we, we didn't have a lot back then. A full course meal for us uh, when we first got married was ramen noodles with cut up hot dogs in it. All right? Yeah. Apparently you like that, huh? That's, that's awesome. More power to you. Uh, we had this car that was a 1995 Jeep, and whenever you opened up the rear hatch, the thing wouldn't stay open. It'd slam shut. And so whenever we would go grocery shopping, we'd have to bring a broom along to prop that hatch open, okay? And uh, that's just how we made it work. That's how we uh, survived back then. And 
Uh, we were both working uh, full-time, about 30, 40 hours a week. We were full-time students as well, and we were living in an apartment. And uh, I worked for the Bible college where we were attending at the time, and part of my job was to go around and speak at different churches in the area on behalf of our school. I was part of uh, the fundraising team, and so that, that was my job. Now, I got to tell you, we had no idea what we were walking, to, walking into each Sunday morning when we would show up at, at some of these churches. We didn't know if there would be 30 people there, if there would be three people there or 500 people there, and usually they were in some rural setting out in the middle of nowhere in Ohio or even here in Indiana and Kentucky, and, and we just didn't know what to expect, okay? I'll never forget uh, being asked to speak at this men's gathering um, that I had no idea what, what it was about, but I was told that there was going to be about 70 to 80 guys that, that were going to be present for this. They gave me an assigned topic in, in text to, to talk on, and uh, so I showed up that night excited to to talk to the guys, and, and I was a little bit surprised, though, when I arrived at this men's gathering, and I was only one of three guys that were there. Now, do you know how awful it is to stand up on a stage and to look out and speak to two people? It gets a lot worse, because I didn't tell you what they asked me to talk on. They had given me the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and that's where Paul says to flee from sexual immorality, all right? And so the low point of the evening was when I looked out, and again, I had written this message thinking that there were going to be 70 or 80 people hearing, 70 to 80 guys hearing this, and you know, kind of wrote it with, there's a mass uh, amount of people in front of me. And so I get to this point in my message where I said, I think that there are, there, there's probably more than one of us here tonight who is struggling with a sexual addiction. <laughs> I want to be like, and it's you, all right? <laughs> Just tell by looking, all right? <laughs> It's horrible. I, mean, I thought it was a joke, and they asked me to come back next year. No, thank you. I'm good. <laughs> and so this strategy that we're going to talk through, it, it has sustained our marriage in good times and in bad when we've had a lot and when we've had a little, okay? And so let, let, let's begin by looking at it from this perspective. All right, I'm going to fill up three different um, <clears throat> little cups here, and this, this represents your income, okay? So maybe you receive a paycheck on a bi-weekly um, uh, time frame, maybe it's a monthly perspective, but whatever your income is, l- let's just go with a, with a monthly perspective, all right? Each time you, you receive money, I want you to first think about that that first 80% is to go towards what it is that you are spending money on uh, today, okay? And so today represents needs that you have right now. And so when you receive that income, 80% of that is going to go towards it, okay? So that's about, oh, dropped a couple jelly beans right there. It's okay, the worship team will come out and I'm sure eat them later after they get back from their smoke break. Uh, Mm. Mm, smells good. <laughs> All right, so 80% spending. You've got bills. You've got needs right now, don't you? And, and th- this, this accounts for set expenses that you might have. Maybe you've got a mortgage. You've got rent. Maybe you've got medical bills, okay? Uh, you've got utilities to pay off. And, and you can't ever get around spending because it sustains you for the day. You've got needs right now that you've got to pay for. Now, most Americans, whenever we receive our paycheck, we live from paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. Yet, wisdom would say, don't, don't spend it all at the same exact time because there's still 20% left over that you need to save for and that you need to put your money towards so that you can be better prepared for what's going to happen in the future. 
And so spending accounts for 80%, and that represents what it is that you're dealing with today, okay? If you're engaged or you're married, you and your spouse need to agree upon what this spending strategy looks like for you. Arguments about money is one of the leading causes of divorce today. Now, here's my theory behind that, okay? It's rarely about the money. Right, when a husband or a wife comes to me and they're, they're having marriage issues and they're fighting a lot and they're about ready to, to sign those papers and, and hire an attorney and, and they're about to leave one another because of money, they just can't get it figured out. It's never really about money. That's simply a revealer. My experience has been that couples split because of a lack of communication and a lack of trust when it comes to how money is spent. Therefore, you've got to agree upon a strategy. You've got to clearly communicate. One thing I'd encourage you to do along with creating a budget is to sit down and create a list of, of everything that may not be in your set monthly expenses that you know you have to buy at some point. Now, in that list, there might be some needs, but there might also be some wants. And so what are those things? I encourage you to write them out. And then what you do from then is then attach a number to each expense according to its priority. Sometimes getting from where you are to where you can be is simply determined by your ability to decipher what's a need and what's a want. Now, besides your mortgage, avoiding debt, if at all possible, is a really wise thing to do. Savannah and I recently uh, became debt-free, and it's been amazing. It took a while, but you know what? We're we're free, and we're excited about what that's going to mean for us. Now, the Bible never says, let me be clear, the Bible never says that debt is a sin, okay? At times, it's necessary, and it may be the only way to meet an urgent need that you might have. But realize, okay, when you borrow money, that the most common metaphor the Bible uses to describe going into debt is this word slavery, And so when you borrow money, you subject yourself to an individual, a bank, or an organization. And if anything, the Bible strongly discourages debt. Now, if borrowing money is the only option with a need that you have, I encourage you to ask yourself two questions. If you've got to borrow money, first question is this. Is this purchase a need or is it a want? Is it a need or is it a want? Borrowing money to meet a need is one thing, but when debt, when you take on debt to fulfill a desire or a want, that's a step towards money having you rather than you having money. Second question I encourage you to ask if you're thinking about going into debt is why don't I have the money right now? Now, the purpose of this question isn't to inflict guilt upon you, but rather it is to help you learn from the past and to look at your past patterns so that you can maybe better prepare for the future, some improvements you can make when it comes to managing your money. You see, spending money is so important that Paul previously in his letter to Timothy said it like this. Hey, anyone who doesn't provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Because the context is that, that Paul's really talking about husbands and fathers. Why? Because men, we're called to be the leaders of our home. Leaders go first. And, and so it's like Paul's telling Timothy here, hey, tell, tell guys in the church that if, if golfing is always taking priority over time with their, their wives, if, if time at, you know, uh, out in the garage on the weekends is more important than devoting time to their kids, or maybe they've got a lot of expenses that, that's going towards a hobby, or they're spending a lot of money each month on, on alcohol or some type of addiction, and, and at some point, at some point, it's going to catch up with them. 
At some point, you're going to blow up some of the most important parts of, of your life. And you know what? If you continue along in this pattern, it's only a matter of time until she leaves you, kids don't respect you. And when that happens, sometimes our immediate reaction is to point the finger, to blame, and to dish out responsibility. Yet, according to what Paul tells Timothy here, and what God's going to tell us one day, guys, it's on us. Guys, it's on us. We have that responsibility to lead and manage our home well. And so how are you doing at this? Are you leading by example? You see, the moment that we decided to marry, the moment we decided to become a father, our priorities changed. Now, if you have adult children with families and and you have the ability to do this, one of the most helpful and fulfilling things that you can do with your money is to give your children random, generous financial gifts Right, my parents, along with my in-laws, have done this for us on multiple occasions. And, and this has not only helped us um, when we needed money, but, but they've experienced the joy of watching their kids' and grandkids' needs uh, being met. Now think about what a generous gift would look like uh, on Christmas morning to give to your kids or grandkids. Mom, Dad, hope you're listening. All right? And so if this first bucket represents 80%, and it represents the spending for today. Here, here's what the second little cup represents. This represents tomorrow, and that is saving. All right, so it's about saving 10%, taking 10% of that paycheck and putting it towards whatever expenses you might have uh, looming in the future. Now, you might say, well, why, why do we need to save? Why can't we just live by faith? I mean, after all, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. You're so spiritual, all right? But Jesus also In Luke chapter 2, we're told that he grew, as as he became more mature, he grew in wisdom. And so Jesus is really saying in Matthew chapter 6, hey, look, trust me today. Even even when you could take that 10% and spend it elsewhere, you know, it it reduces what you can use your money on and and what what your money can go towards, but it's actually wise that that you listen to this, this teaching. Now, some super spiritual Christians will say, well, you know, I, I still just choose to, to live by faith. You know, God has always provided for me whenever, I, whenever I've had a need. I don't need to save money. Yet what's interesting is that if you continue to pry and ask them, quite, well, really, where did that money come from? The money usually comes from another person who has managed their money well, all right, has actually saved, therefore has the freedom to be generous towards other people. And so taking that 10% and, and thinking about what tomorrow may hold is a really wise thing to do. Saving for tomorrow helps you build up what some would call an emergency fund. Financial experts say that an emergency fund should consist of three to six months worth of expenses for you and your family. Now, I can't tell you how helpful this has been for us this past year because we've had a lot of expenses that I didn't see on the horizon and that we didn't plan for. All right, just within the past month, I've had to pay for three uh, three sets of new tires. This past year, I've had to pay for a new transmission, an ER bill when my son dropped a pot of boiling water on his foot, a brand new chandelier to go into my daughter's room when it just happened to catch on fire one afternoon, a large vet bill when one of my dogs swallowed a hot dog with a fish hook on it, a couple speeding tickets. Um, I had a lady come up to me after service. She said, hey, I've got something for you. Um, I figured you could use it and put it in your glove box whenever you get pulled over. It's like, oh, what's that? She said, well, I, I know you don't always keep your Bible with you, so I figured you could just always pull this out. It says, I'm senior pastor at Crossroads Christian. It doesn't say I'm the. It says, I'm senior pastor at Crossroads Christian Church. So whenever I get pulled over, I'm just going to pull this out and wear it. 
you know. <laughs> now, one of the best things I think that you can do as a mom and dad is to teach your kids what it looks like to manage their money. All right, my mom and dad did this for me uh, really well. I'll never forget, uh, when I was about 10 years old, um, I, I wanted to save for a car. I'm the youngest of five kids, so when I saw my three older sisters and older brother uh, drive a, an old beat-up Volvo for their first car, I thought to myself, I don't want to drive that thing, so I'm going to start saving for my money. Well, my dad told me at that time, whatever money you save and you put towards a car, I will match, okay? So when I was 10 years old, I started a car detailing business. I've always loved cars. I'm a car guy, so I started a car detailing business, and, and that kind of took off. My clientele base grew, and, and a couple years later, I started a lawn care business. And so when I was 16 years old, I was able to pay for my car. Now, my parents could have paid for all of it, but you know what? It wasn't really about the car. It wasn't really about you know, saving for what I ultimately wanted, because I later sold that car. Instead, the principles and the way to manage money has stuck with me even to this day. And so how are you doing this as moms and, and dads? All right, this last bucket is really the, the most important bucket, and it should be first, okay, because this represents <clears throat> putting our money towards eternity, giving 10%, all right, giving 10%. Now, in the Bible, um, we read about a time when God told his people, the Jewish people, to, to set aside the first 10% of their income, of the resources, livestock, whatever it was, to give it back to God. Now, sometimes this is referred to as the tithe. It's the, ver it's the first 10%. Now, notice it, it's not any 10%. It's that first 10%. Here's why. Because when you tithe and, and you give that first 10%, it's a reminder that God provided this for me. God is the owner of everything, but he's going to continue to be first in my life. And here's the other thing that tithing does. It's a step of trust that we take because we are, in essence, eliminating the amount of money that we have to spend. Now, my experience has been that whenever I withhold tithing until, you know, a week after I receive a paycheck or uh, 10 days, whatever it may be, I'm kind of hanging on to it a little bit just in case I have some extra expenses that come up and I need to use that money elsewhere. But God says, look, that, that's kind of besides the point. It's besides the point because when you give that first 10%, you are forcing yourself to trust God with what the future holds. One guy, uh, again, Paul, he, he said it like this to a church in Rome, and, um, and his point is, hey, when we give, you're reminded of how generous God has been. And so he, he illustrates it by saying, hey, for God knew his people in advance. He, he knew you, okay? He's talking about us, the church, Christians. And he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, that word firstborn is really interesting because it's interchangeable for the word first fruits. First fruits is another name for the word tithe. So do you see what Paul is saying right here? He's saying that, that Jesus was God's tithe to us. Jesus is, is the reason why we're free. And, and so God doesn't expect us to do something that he hasn't already done. And why? Because he knows that leaders go first. And so what has God given to you that maybe he wants to give through you? What do your bank statements say about you? You see, the way that we spend money, it says more about us than, than we even think. John Tillotson um, said it like this, he who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment, but a fool forever. Several months ago, I, I met with a guy in my office. Uh, he reached out to me, 
and said, hey, I've been attending Crossroads for a little while, and I want to take a step towards um, looking at what, what it's like to invest in the church. And so I sat down in our office. We made small talk, kind of hit it off, and, and he said, look, I'll cut right to it. My wife and I have been attending Crossroads for about two years or so, and we just, we just love it. I mean, every week we, we look forward to it. And I got to tell you, we love the direction that the church is heading. We are passionate about it. works that we've never felt this way about a, a church before. Now, now we're ready to, to not only be on board and, and get connected to Crossroads, he said, but before any of that can happen, it, it's, time, it's time that I start giving. And you see, what he meant by that was this. I'm, re- I'm ready to invest in eternity. I'm ready to give up my time and my abilities for this church. And as the husband, I'm called to go first, but, but none of that really matters if my checkbook doesn't go first. My pastor growing up used to say that whenever he would talk on money and he would do a, a money series, inevitably our church would have more decisions for Christ. More people would come forward and be baptized than any other weekend or any other series throughout the year. Now, when Bob told me that, I said, now that doesn't make any sense. Talking about money, decisions for Christ, usually people have their guards up. Why is that the case? In your experience, why do people give their lives to Jesus more when talking about money? And he said this, he said, it's really easy. If people can give up their checkbooks, they can give up their hearts. Isn't that what Jesus said? And so here, here's a challenge I, I want to throw your way. All right, one of these two challenges is going to apply to you. And I want you, to, I want you to tune in, and I want you to take it seriously, okay? Because if you want freedom in this part of your life, it not only is going to require thinking differently, but adopting a strategy that's going to back it up, okay? Some of us right now, we need to begin tithing. We need to begin giving a 10% of our income, all right? Now, you might think, well, that's really, you know... Um, Self-centered of you, Patrick, because it's ultimately going to go to the church and there's a lot of conflict of interest by you asking us to give, all right? Now, here's the thing. If you've never given before and you don't want to give to Crossroads, that's fine. Why don't you give that 10% to some other organization that you believe in? What would it look like for you just to take two months out of your life and get in the habit of giving? And eventually, what I think is going to happen, what I know is going to happen, God is not only going to bless you, and I don't know what that's necessarily going to look like, all right? But eventually, your heart is going to catch up with your checkbook. All right, so if that's Crossroads, great. We'd love to have, we'd love to, for you to be a part of what God is doing in us and, and through us. If it's somewhere else, th- that's fine as well. But begin taking that first step of tithing just for two months, okay? Not asking you to run a mile or a marathon or anything like that. Just two months. What do you have to lose, okay? Here, here's another challenge. There's some of us in here, life's just chaotic. When it comes to finances, you just feel out of control. You've got a lot of debt. You've got a lot of bills coming your way, and, and you just can't get a hold of it. And, and when I ask the question, do you have your money or does your money have you, you, you would no doubt say, well, my money has me. I feel controlled by it. I feel enslaved to it. And I just feel help. I, I feel suffocated right now with where I am in life. I don't know where to go. And, and maybe today has been a really good start for you, but you need more. Look, in January, here at Crossroads Newburgh and Crossroads West, we're going to offer a class called Financial Peace University. All right? It begins Monday, January 15th. And I want you to register for this class. Okay? Because some of us, we can't even begin to think about generosity. We can't even begin to think about eternity because we are so enslaved and consumed by paying the bills of today. All right? And so log on to cccgo.com forward slash money 
and you can register for this class. It's a life-transforming class. I've been through it, okay? Uh, I went through it about 12, 13 years ago, and I still apply the principles of it to this day. I promise you, you will not regret it. It will get you to a place of, of more uh, freedom in, in your life. Now, here's the thing about those next steps when it comes to giving. We, we, t- we typically put off what we need to do because we, we just don't feel ready, <laughs> right? I'll never forget when Savannah and I got engaged, question that we heard from every direction was, are, are you ready to get married? Are you ready to get married? I got so sick of people asking me that question. Do you know what my response always was? No, I'm not. It has nothing to do with who I'm marrying because I couldn't have married somebody better than Savannah. She's awesome. But I meant when I said, I'm not ready to get married. Here's why. Because I've never been married before. How can I really prepare for something if I've never really experienced it and, and walked through that? And the same is true when we have kids. Are you ready to have kids? No. All right. But I followed through with those next steps and it was the best thing ever. You see, had I waited until I was fully ready, I never would have gotten married. I never would have had kids. And so often, our life and the decisions that we make is determined by us having some emotion or meeting some certain standard of feelings. And and if you wait to give until you're ready, if if you wait to get this part of your life in order until you're ready, let me just tell you something. You're going to be waiting a long time because you're never fully going to be ready. So today is that day. I want you to take one of those two next steps and see how God has a better plan for your life when you submit to what he says is right and true. And with time, you're gonna learn that it's possible for you to have money and for money not to have you. Let's pray. God, you, you are the model of generosity. It has been said before, we've said it here a lot, and it's true that never are we more like you give. Generosity is a defining attribute of, of who you are and And it's because of your generosity that we have the opportunity to be saved and redeemed and forgiven. So God, thank you. Would you continue to teach us what it looks like for us to to have money and to manage our money well rather than money having us and it controlling our life. And and Lord, would, would you just continue to give us discernment and wisdom and help something that was said today to ring true through our ears throughout this week. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.